Good morning. Hey, my name is Perry. I'm part of the staff team here at Calvary. It's really good to see you here with us this morning, especially if you're a first-time visitor or haven't been here in a while. We just want to thank you for being with us. It's, it's great to see you here with us this morning. Hey, I want to let you know, uh, Pastor Tom, who has been away for a while now on sabbatical, is coming back this week. And so next week, he'll be up here standing where I'm at right now. And I know we're all glad to see that, aren't we? Uh, that's great. But because he's coming back, you know, this place is kind of a mess. Um, we haven't really taken care of it too much since we've been away. So uh, we're actually just going to take some time during this time normally devoted to the sermon, and we're just going to walk through the church and clean the place up. Is that okay? All right. Hey, um, you know, we're, we are in this series out of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is, a, is the epic story of what God has done to take his people from a place of slavery, from a place of bondage and oppression, to a place of promise. The book of Exodus is a book where we get to learn about God as he reveals himself to us. The book of Exodus might correct some of our misunderstandings about who God is along the way as we see him revealed to us. You know, I was thinking this week about how imagination plays a big role in our lives. We imagine all kinds of things. We imagine maybe what our career might be like someday. We imagine what it will be like maybe to have a family or if we're choosing to be single, what that might be like. We might imagine what it will be like to grow older and to have grandkids. And I think a lot about these things, especially this week, because this week was my 20th reunion from college. And so I had an opportunity to kind of be nostalgic and remember the past 20 years. And I can tell you, I had no idea that I would end up right here in this place 20 years later speaking to you all. I mean, I would have never imagined that. And as I think about how I have thought ahead and tried to imagine things, I've just come to the realization that my imagination is not very good. I often don't get it right in how I think things will go. The same thing happens with people. I might meet somebody for the first time, and my first impression of that, pe that person is one thing, but it turns out that that person, after I get to know them better, is somebody entirely different. I think that happens to all of us if you've been married. You, you stand up and you, you say your vows to somebody and then you realize, who is this person? After a while. And that, that's just a part of life. It's a part of our experience. But I'm mostly concerned this morning about how our imagination relates to our understanding of God, of who God is. See, the book of Exodus reveals to us who God is, not, not as we might imagine him to be, not as we might fashion him to be, or not, not who other people might have told us who he is, but it actually corrects our understanding of God. It corrects our imagination of who he is by revealing to us who God actually is. And this morning in the text, we're going to see this in a fresh way. We're going to be reminded of who God is. And there may be some things about who God is that we're not particularly fond of right at the start. We might have an image of God in our minds of one thing, because this is the God who we want, but we're going to find out about the God who actually is through this text this morning. Now, we've been seeing it, so if you've been with us for this series so far, then not much of this would be new to you, but if 
you are walking in the door for the first time this morning, this might be surprising to you as we encounter this God who's revealed to us in the pages of Exodus. We're going to start off this morning in chapter 11. And so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll have some of the passages up here on the screen. But in chapter 11 of the book of Exodus, starting off in verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So we need some explanation to fill in the background here. Moses is the man that God has raised up from within his own people, the people of Israel, to lead his people out of bondage, out of slavery. He's representing God to the Egyptians. And up until this point, we've seen that through a series of miraculous events that God has caused through Moses and Moses' brother Aaron, that God has displayed his power firsthand to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. And now God has said to Moses, there's one more thing I'm going to do. And then Pharaoh will let you go from there. So last week, we saw that there were nine of these miraculous events or plagues. Everything from turning the water of the Nile into blood to darkening the sun for three days. And then in between there, we saw plagues of insects, gnats, and locusts. We saw a hailstorm. All of these miraculous events meant to reveal who God actually is and to display God's presence and to display God's power right in front of everyone's eyes. So then, when, when we read on from here, this is what the Lord tells Moses to say to the king of Egypt in verse 4 of chapter 11. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And then as we read on in the text, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So up until this point, we have seen that God is revealing himself as the God who is present. In fact, just to remind you, every time we see this word Lord in all capital letters, the name behind that is Yahweh. And the, what Yahweh means in the original language in Hebrew is I am. It's pointing to God's active presence in the world, but more importantly in this case, in Egypt, that God is the one who is actually present. You see, that's a major corrective to everyone from the Egyptians and probably to many of the Israelites. For 400 years, they had been enslaved among this people who did not believe in this God. Instead, they had their own system of beliefs. And the text says that they cried out to the Lord, and as they cried out, that God actually heard their cries that he knew their situation, that he was present with them. And so when we see this word Lord in all capital letters, that just reminds us this is the God who actually is present and active. And now his presence is going to be felt in a whole new way because he says about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. It's not Moses this time or Aaron representing God, but the Lord himself is actually going out and he is the one who is going to do the work this time firsthand. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. 
the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl. It's from the highest to the lowest in Egypt and everywhere in between. The firstborn will die. What do you imagine when you imagine God? Do you imagine God in this way, as the one who would do such a thing as this? See, we have a lot of ideas about God in our minds. We have a lot of ideas about who he is. This is a God, though, who might make us a little uncomfortable. This is a God who we may not be so quick to embrace. Because this is a God who is bringing judgment. Let's read on. Verse 7 But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh, this is Moses, in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So we see these two aspects of who God is. One is as the, the one bringing judgment, but the other is the God who brings deliverance. God is both judge and deliverer. Do you think of that when you think about who God is? That he has both of these roles. That he is the one who sends us out of oppression and slavery and captivity. That's the God I like to embrace. But here on the other hand, we have this God who is also a judge. And his judgment is fierce. Back up in verse 6 of chapter 11 here. The text said that there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Earlier in chapter 2, there had been this other statement about how the, during the many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So here earlier in the book of Exodus, it was the people of Israel crying out. They'd been enslaved for 400 years. This statement about how the king of Egypt died just reinforces how long it had been because there was Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh. It's not just one man, but it's a, a succession of men occupying the king position in Egypt. And each of these occasions was marked by brutality against the people of Israel. And so the cries used to come up to God from Israel, but now what God is going to do is turn the tables. So now the cry is going to come up from the Egyptians. It says not a dog will bark or growl against the people of Israel. It's a massive turning of the tables here. See, the image we get here is not only that God is the judge and God is the deliverer, but that the two actually go hand in hand. That in order to bring about deliverance, God must bring judgment. In order to deliver from oppression and brutality and slavery, God has to bring about judgment against those things in order to deliver his people. Do you think of God as the deliverer? Do you think of God as the judge? 
We have a tendency to side with one or the other and exclude the other. The thing that I'm going to assume this morning is that most of us have more of a problem with God's judgment. That's where I'm at. It's more difficult for me to wrap my arms, my mind, my heart around this idea that God is the judge. Maybe we can examine his judgment, though, and and start to grasp it better, even if emotionally we still are uneasy about it. Some things we can say, though, as we look at the text, and as we've seen in previous weeks, is that God's judgment is slow in coming. The Israelites have been in captivity for over 400 years. Imagine talking to an Israelite about how quickly God was to judge. As their parents were enslaved, as their grandparents were enslaved, as the generation before them was enslaved. Imagine talking to the Israelites about how Pharaoh had required them to chuck their babies into the Nile River and then ask if God's judgment was slow or quick. See, to the victims of oppression and brutality, which I've never experienced personally, but to those victims, I can only imagine God's judgment was really slow. The other thing about God's judgment is that it's limited. God could just wipe Egypt off the map. In fact, he, he said that last week to Pharaoh. I could have wiped you out by now. But when God brings his judgment, it's not total annihilation in that sense. God is bringing his judgment, but it's in a limited, very specific way in this text. He's going after the firstborn. I don't know if that's satisfying to you. But another thing that we can say about God's judgment also is that it's for a very specific and particular reason. It's not just arbitrary. It's not like God is just having a bad day. It's very calculated. And it's for a specific intent. We see that if we flip ahead to chapter 12, verse 12. Here's what the text says in that case. He says this for... This is God speaking. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Again, we see that specific limited judgment. He says, both man and beast of the firstborn will die, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Again, I am the I am. I am the one who is. I am the God who is present. But he says it's against the gods of Egypt that he is executing this judgment. The Egyptians believed in a couple of things. One would be categorized as pantheism, meaning that God is everywhere. He's present in the trees. He's present in the air. He's present in the Nile. He's present in the stars and the moon and the sun. Against that, God is saying through his revelation here, no, no, no. No, I am distinct from my creation. I am everywhere present but I am not actually in those things. Those things are not actually me. The trees are not divine. The sun is not divine. The Nile is not divine. And that's where we see the other aspect of the Egyptian beliefs. And that other aspect is that it was polytheistic, meaning had many gods. So there is a separate god for the Nile. There is a separate god for the sun. How interesting that those 
first and ninth plagues were specifically about those things. See, what God is doing here and revealing himself through a numerous series of plagues is he is attacking the idea about who God is here in the Egyptian belief system. This is actually an act of God's mercy in a way because what God is doing is he is correcting their misconceived notion. Who they have imagined God to be is no God at all. And so God, through these series of events, is revealing who the one true God actually is. That's why we see this series of plagues against Egypt. He's saying, no, no, no. There is no God over the Nile but me. You see the the sun being darkened out. No, no, there is no other God over the sun but me. I am one and the same God who controls all the universe. I even control the flight paths of millions of tiny insects throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh, you think you control everything. Actually, you control only what I allow you to have control of. This is the one true God. When you think about God, when you imagine him, do you imagine him in this way? As the God who is sovereign over all, the God who serves as both our deliverer, but also as the judge. This is who our God is. Okay, so if this is who God is, then the question we might want to ask is how do we put ourselves in the place of God's deliverance? How do we make sure that we are the kind of people who are delivered by God and not the kind of people who are in the place of his judgment? That's the question we want to know because ultimately that's what it boils down to. Once God has revealed himself to us, then that revelation should inform us in terms of how we live our lives. And that's what we see also as well in this text in chapter 12. So in chapter 12... As God is about to deliver his people, he provides them a whole set of instructions. He tells them about this specific thing that he wants them to do as his people that distinguishes them from the people of Egypt. He tells them to go through this practice, and this just reminds us of how this book, this text was written to a people far, far away in a galaxy far, far away in a land in a time long, long ago. How badly can you butchered that line. Anyways, so this text was not written to us even though it was written for us. This is the reality as we read this because we're about to see some things that are quite strange to us, but we shouldn't think that they were so immediately normal for them either. Here's what the Lord says. He says, first of all, to Moses and Aaron, instruct the people to take a lamb a year old, male, without blemish, without defect, and to slaughter it. And then he says this in verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So just around the doorframe of the house. Smear the blood on there. And then in verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. 
In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, your car idling in the driveway with a full tank of gas, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Hurry! Everything about this passage says, hurry, hurry, get ready. This is like the modern day equivalent of a microwave dinner. He's saying, hurry, get ready. You slaughter the lamb at twilight. You smear the blood around the doorframe of your house. And then don't bother trying to do anything complicated with the animal. Just do the bare necessity that you have to do in order to prepare it. So roast it. Don't waste any time trying to butcher it, cut it all up, and prepare it different ways. Don't boil it. That takes too long. Don't put yeast in your bread. You don't have time for that. Just make it without yeast and so you can eat it quickly. And then make sure that your, your cloak is tucked in, that you're ready to go. Make sure that you're, you're standing around anticipating that you're going to have to suddenly go. Can you imagine that scene? I mean, come on. It had been 400-some years that they had been unable to escape. And now God is saying, on this night, on this specific night, we're going to leave? Like, what's the rush? We've been here so long. If you just make it a big round number of 400 years, then that's the equivalent of 146,000 evenings. They have not been able to get out. And now, all of the sudden, it's time to go. Just imagine receiving these instructions. They didn't know what was coming next. Of course, God had, had revealed things to them about what he was going to do. But they couldn't just turn the page in their Bible like we can and read about what's coming. See, what it boils down to is this requires an act of faith. That in order to carry out these instructions, they had to put their trust in who God had revealed himself to be and then to listen to what he had told them to do, to take part in. See, I think the message here is that if we want to be in the place of God's deliverance rather than God's judgment, then we have to realize that the kind of people who God delivers are the kind of people who live by faith, who trust Him in faith. It's true in Exodus, and it's true today for us. That in order to be in the path of God's deliverance, you have to trust Him by faith. So as they, they go throughout all of these, these steps and they, they smear the blood, they, they eat the dinner the way that God has planned them to do, they will experience God's deliverance. But that's not all that God requires of them. That's not all he tells them to do. The Lord also wants them to remember. Remember what he's about to do before he's even done it. Let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to go quickly through a series of verses that just help make this point that God is calling them to remember. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So when they came into Egypt, they were a family. It was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons. They were a family in Egypt. 
And now they are departing Egypt as a nation. And as a nation, they've never had their own systems, like their own way to track the days and the months and the years. And God is saying that what I'm about to do is so significant that it's going to inform and define and orient all of your calendar going forward. We read down in verse 14 of chapter 12. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And then he gives these instructions about this feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven or yeast out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So there's this seriousness about what God is instructing them to do. This isn't like an option for them to just say, ah, maybe we'll do it if we remember, if we have time, if we feel like it. This is God saying, no, no, no. See, what I'm doing has everything to do with your deliverance from judgment. If you're going to walk in my ways and follow me by faith, that means you have to remember. And this is the way I want you to remember by engaging in this kind of activity that will remind you of what I have done in the past. Verse 17, and, on, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. If you skip to verse 24 of chapter 12, he says, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. They're called to remember. Jeffrey Arthurs is a professor at a seminary on the East Coast called Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And he writes about 55 people in the U.S. who have this condition known as hyperthymesia, also known as highly superior autobiographical memory. These people spend an excessive amount of time thinking about their past and display an extraordinary ability to recall specific events. Alexandra Wolfe is one of the 55. In an interview with National Public Radio, she describes how she remembers every detail of a mundane activity like driving to Target for groceries that occurred more than 10 years ago. She remembers what she wore and ate every day for the past decade. She remembers if the fan in the bedroom was running at the same time last year. For her, memory is almost like time travel, where she relives the past in concrete detail. Memory for her is almost like time travel, where she recalls the past in concrete detail. My friends, when we come into this place on a Sunday morning, we're not doing it without a purpose in mind. When we are part of base camp or part of a life group, we're a part of WNT or part of chaos, when we have our children in a family ministry, when we're a part of an adult Sunday class or a class that meets during the week, we're not doing it without a purpose. 
Sure, we can say that our purpose is to learn new stuff. So we can walk out of the door with new stuff in our minds that we didn't know on the way in. That's a great thing. We don't want to minimize that. But if that is the primary way you evaluate the purpose of this, then we're missing it. The primary thing that we do in this room, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, is we remind ourselves of things that are far too easy to forget. We are here to remind ourselves of who this God is. The same way God had called the people of Israel to remind themselves through these kinds of rituals, recurring things that they're supposed to participate in. We do that on a weekly basis as well so that we don't lose touch in a world of all different kinds of messages, different ideas, different philosophies. It's so easy to lose track and to forget the essentials of our faith. But we come into this room every week to be reminded, to remind ourselves of what we have learned, already know, but need to remember. The people of Israel are called to do that in their own way as well. We need to remember that God is the judge, but that God is also the deliverer. That those two things are not contradictory, but they are who he is. We need to remember that the kind of people he delivers are the people who trust him by faith, who walk by faith. But you know, there's another reason why we ought to remember what God has done here in the pages of Exodus. And we see that as we look forward a thousand some years into what came after in the life of Jesus Christ. John, in chapter 1 of his account of Jesus' life, says this about Jesus. This is the way he greets Jesus one day. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then again, it says the next day, he did it again. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God. I mean, imagine Jesus walks into a room where John is, and that's Jesus' greeting. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What an extraordinary thing to say. That comment only makes sense in the context of a people who have remembered the past, who have remembered the significance of what God had done for them long ago and far away, But as they remembered, it brought it into their specific time and place in history. In Luke 22, we see even a more fully defined significance of this, of what Jesus has done. This is in preparation for the Last Supper. Then came the day of unleavened bread, that way to remember what God had done so long before, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And the next, he says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There was a Passover long ago in the book of Exodus. There was a Passover still long ago, but not as long ago, here 
in the Gospels here. And there is a Passover in front of us too. See, as we look back on what God has done, we're also looking ahead to what he will do. This is who our God is, the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God is delivering us from our own form of oppression and bondage and slavery. That God is delivering us in a way that brings glory to his name, that reveals who he is to a world who does not know him, who imagines him to be all kinds of different things. And as we meet in this place, we are reminded of the reality, what's really true about our world, about him, and about who we are in light of him. So my friends, I just want to leave you with one simple question this morning. As you think about your life, are you in the path of God's deliverance, the things that he's doing here, or are you in the path of God's judgment? If you're not in the path of God's deliverance, if you don't even know what that looks like for your life, I would love to talk with you. I would love to pray with you after this service. I'll be up front. Some others will be up front. We would love to talk to you about what that looks like for your life. This is the God who is, who is present, who is powerful, and who specializes in releasing us, in driving us out of the things that enslave us. This is the God for us to worship and to orient all of our lives to for his glory and for our good. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your work. We're so grateful for your power. We're so grateful that you are with us in every moment, in every place. No matter where we go, Lord, you are there. Lord, no matter where we are this morning, what our circumstances are, no matter what's troubling us, what's preoccupying us, Father, you know and you are aware and you are able to meet us where we are. God, I pray that you would give us hearts that seek your deliverance, hearts and lives, Lord, that are obedient by faith to the things that you require of us. Lord, may we exalt your name with the way that we live. I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded through this time here, of what is true about you, that you are the judge, but you are the deliverer as well, and what is true about our lives, Lord, that you are calling us out of bondage to a place of promise and hope. Lord, may we rejoice and celebrate in that truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.